Morning. <clears throat> Welcome. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. So if you're new with us, we're glad you made it. Um, anybody get coffee in the new Keurig? Yeah. It was fun watching uh, the first hour of people. They were just sort of looking at it. Like the sensor, like there's no sensor, you know, but it was fun. Um, we have much to do today and to learn together. So if you want to take notes, now's a great time to start because we're just going to jump right in. We have been over the last several weeks moving through this New Testament uh, letter called Second Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there uh, as well. Our main passage is on the front of the bulletin if you got one of those. And this letter was written by this man named Paul. And Paul lived in the middle of the first century, right around in there. And uh, during that first century, he uh, planted churches, he resourced churches, he helped them grow in their faith, he coached them in their relationship with God. He was an apostle, uh, which meant that he had this unique calling on his life that was given to him uh, personally and directly uh, from Jesus, sort of the qualification to be an apostle, by the way. And so he was also an apostle. And subsequently, he wrote all sorts of letters to the various churches that he planted, even some that he didn't plant. And those letters fill the pages of our New Testament. Other than the gospel writings, Paul dominates the New Testament. So if you're just reading in the New Testament, you're probably reading something that, uh, that he wrote. And that's where we've been. And he wrote this letter. Um, he wrote several letters to the Corinthian church that he helped start. And this second one that we have in our New Testaments, um, it has this theme, it has this undercurrent that uh, drives the letter. And it's a real interesting uh, thing for Paul to give away what the letter is about at the very beginning, because he doesn't always do that. It's always kind of here and there some, uh, sometimes. But in this letter, there's no doubt as to what the content is about. Let me show you the first few verses of the very first chapter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our, what? Affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's kind of a tongue twister. But basically what you're hearing here in the first couple of verses, and all the verses that follow this, by the way, in this chapter deal with the same topic, but this is about suffering and pain and difficulty. Now, the first two verses of the letter are standard Greek letter writing introductory comments, like Paul's just saying, hey, this is Paul, how's it going, what's up, hope you're doing well, and then these phrases that you see on the screen, they form the first real uh, words of the letter in terms of content. So there's no doubt that this letter is about something that all of us understand personally, and that's pain and suffering and difficulty, and all of the teachings through uh, this season that we're in deal with this very issue. And we've talked about a lot of things in the last several weeks, and I'll do a quick review actually at the end uh, to sort of bring you up to speed on what we've, what we've dealt with. But all of our passages are directly tied to this reality of pain and suffering and difficulty uh, in our lives. And in this particular letter, there's no doubt as to what it was about. Now, Paul himself, um, when he wrote this letter, it was a response to some criticism that he was receiving from the people in Corinth at this church. Because Paul himself was going through all kinds of difficulty and suffering and hardship in his own life. And there were some 
in the church in Corinth that were starting to wonder if Paul was legitimate as a leader, as a church planter, as an apostle, as a Christian, right? And that's a normal response for us. Like when someone's life's falling apart, if you're a religious type, you think, how mad is God at them, right? Like what did they do to have such a storm of stuff rain down on them? from God. Like that's what, that's a natural sort of reaction. We just assume, our first assumption is God is really ticked off and so he broke their car down, right? And then their house burned down and then their wife left them and then their kids became really unmanageable. Like clearly he's a sinful person, you know? That's a sort of a knee-jerk reaction for us when someone is going through all kinds of difficulty. It's a normal thing for us to do, to look at someone's circumstances and make this judgment call on God's care and love for that person. And so Paul, in this letter, is kind of defending himself. I mean, the letter has this like polemical tone to it, like I'm gonna fight for my credibility. Like just because I'm going through pain and suffering doesn't mean anything about God's care for me and even more so about his calling on my life. Just because everything is terrible for me, it doesn't erase the truth of God's call on my life and his presence in my life And so all of that is sort of at the heart of this letter. And Paul, again, brings in the reality of suffering for all people. And he points, really, in his opening verses, that sometimes our suffering is for the benefit of others, which comes up in this season of teaching later. But what matters most to Paul, and this is what we're going to zero in on today, what matters most is not the circumstances that you're going through. That's where we tend to stop and analyze and, you know, and, and, and try and figure out what's happening to us, what it all means. It's not really the circumstances that are Paul's first concern. That's kind of a short-sighted view for him. But it's how you get through and deal with the stuff that you're going through. Because it's there, to borrow a word, um, I guess all words are borrowed, Um, I I could make up some, but, um, (laughs) it's how a person gets through the pain and the suffering that defines their character, it defines their ethos, their nature. That's what matters most. And if you want to write something down today, this is just not even that profound, and it's going to sound like some sort of thing you might, might hear, like some Tony Robbins, like, you know, whatever, but in the midst of suffering, and this is what Paul's going to say through this text today, in the midst of suffering, keep the faith, right? I know that's like a song or something, but this is a deeply biblical term, and so if, if you're connecting that to some cheesy cultural thing, it's rooted in a biblical understanding of endurance and a relationship with God, and so this phrase, keep the faith, is so strong uh, for us. So before we get into that, it's fairly heavy. Let's just talk about ice cream. <laughs> ice cream is my comfort food. Does anybody have a comfort food? Okay, several of you. Um, is ice cream one of them? See, ice cream for me, like if it's in the freezer, it has a shelf life of about as long as it takes for me to eat it. Like, <laughs> that's it. Like if it's in there, it's gone. Like that, don't even buy it. And my favorite ice cream is the vanilla fudge swirl Briars. Anybody? That's not your favorite? (laughs) 
Um, I mean, I don't really care if it's not your favorite. I just was hoping we'd have some community in here. But my wife's favorite is chocolate chip. Anybody on that? What, what do you people eat? Like <laughs> vanilla? Chocolate? Don't give me some cheesy, you know, Rocky Road moose tracks. All right. Which is good, by the way. Because it comes with like the tiny Reese's cups. Those are just like, I just, now Alden, my son, will just pick those out. He's mining for Reese's Cups. It looks like a, when you open the box, it's like someone aerated the <laughs> ice cream. Um, so anyway, that's my favorite. My wife's favorite is chocolate chip. And really the first couple of you know, years of marriage, I mean, that, that was like the biggest, like, which ice cream do we buy? I mean, that's what you got to do in marriage. You've got to figure out how to do the ice cream, you know, or the bread or whatever, you know. And so finally we just said, we're, when we're buying ice cream, we're just buying a lot of it. And uh, I'll have mine, you have yours, and I'll actually eat some of yours too. But, uh, but the, the fudge swirl goes back to perhaps for me as a kid. I remember uh, at my grandmother's house, she would make that ice cream for me, and I would sit on the floor and I would watch The Love Boat. Anybody? Which came on right before, anyone? Fantasy Island, very good, very good. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, I think it's just probably conditioning. Like, I love that ice cream. It's just been around uh, forever. But the thing about it is, like, if I, and I know you probably do this too, but if, if, if it's stressful in my life, like, if there's ice cream in the refrigerator, that's where I go, you know? Now, I know you'd like to hear your pastor say, I'm on my knees. I pray immediately when there's stress. But sometimes, like, ice cream supersedes <laughs> prayer. I mean, it just happens that way, you know? There are just certain... Uh, reactionary behaviors that feel like um, they feel like I'm getting something out of it, I'm getting a reprieve, I'm getting some rest. Do you have those? It might not be food for you, but maybe the question for you, like a layer into that is like, what are those things that you end up doing as a response to stress and as a response to uh, perhaps pain and suffering? I bet it's a list of several consistent things. Now, let me make the question harder. What are the things that you find yourself doing in response to stress and pain and suffering that are outside of God's best for you? You might call that sin. But sin really is just comfort food for a struggling soul. Because it's temporary, and we know that. The results are very short-lived, and we know that. But in the moment, it feels right. It feels like a better God because the payoff is immediate. And we end up compromising sometimes who we are, our character, because everything around us is very tough. And so something nearby that will give us some relief, even if just for a moment, that's where we go. Think about the biblical understanding of idolatry, such a scary word. But in the biblical understanding, of, I mean, we think of the statue and everyone kneeling down and, and, and worshiping it, and I suppose that's a portion of it. But the biblical understanding of idolatry is actually much more practical every day. Like the way the Bible describes idolatry is simply this, that you can take anything that's a good thing 
a relationship, a goal that you have in life, a material possession. Like any, these are just good things in and of themselves. And when you elevate those to a divine status, you're playing with idolatry. And when you elevate something that's good to something that's divine, you begin to worship it. Now, how do you worship something? You sacrifice to it and for it. So if it's a relationship, if it's this guy or this girl, and you've, you know, this, it's a good thing, it's a good person, but you elevate that person to a level that they were never created to have, you begin to sacrifice to that person and for that person in hopes that you will gain their approval and that they'll stick around, right? Or if it's a thing that you want, you sacrifice all your money, all your possessions, all your, you know, logic financially to get it. You sacrifice for it, right? If it's a goal in your life and the goal becomes the God, then you forsake all others for that goal. You step on people. You may work with these people. They're just blowing people to bits to get to their goal. They don't don't care about you. And when you take a good thing and you elevate it to a divine thing, give it the status of a divine something, you begin to worship it, sacrifice for it, in hopes that it or he or she will keep you around. Think about the words of Jesus when he said, look, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And this is fairly profound. I mean, like, your heart and your treasure, they always end up in the same place, right? I mean, wherever, whatever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Jesus is saying, here's the deal. Your heart always follows your treasure, and your treasures financially always fund your heart. Always. You always end up there. And when you're chasing those things, they can become very dangerous. Think about the story of um, the Israelites and the golden calf. Do you know this story? I love this story. They're at the bottom of the mountain. Moses takes off for a few weeks to you know, hang out with God, to get some instructions, to bring him back down to the people of Israel. Well, they get sort of tired of what? Waiting on Moses. Essentially waiting on God's direction for them. So what do they do? Like Aaron, the brother of Moses, like directs the Israelites to build this golden calf so they can worship this idol, this physical idol. Now there's a lot of difficulties in the story and there's a lot of meanings and a lot of sort of like what is going on there. But one of the things that comes out of that is so simple for us is, and it's very practical for us is idolatry, which is what was happening there. Idolatry tends to happen when we grow sort of tired of waiting on God. The moment we feel like God is too slow, we find something that's faster, right? And again, that's a complicated story, but one of the realities from that story is so practical for us, is that when we feel like God is taking too long, like he's this old man who can't hear or can't see or can't keep up with us, we turn to something that might be younger and faster, and we go for it. And that's all sin is. If you're looking for a great definition for sin, it's simply substituting something in place of God that was originally God's role. C.S. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition and religious effort. When infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And what a great line to end this with. We are far too easily pleased. That's all sin is. I mean, you, you know this in retrospect. You look back and you say this phrase, like, what was I thinking? 
Him? Really? Look at this picture of this guy. That's what I was thinking? But in the moment, you're far too easily pleased. Does that make sense? And so when we're tired of waiting, when we don't know what's next, we look for the next best thing, and then we're just too easily pleased with something that's less than what God has for us. Now, let's get into our passage today. Just a couple of verses, because it's very long and it's very interesting, but there's a, there's, a, there's a nice heart to it, and it starts in verse 3. And Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Now, that seems like a throwaway verse, but let's just stop there for a moment. We means I. Paul's being very nice here, including the uh, Corinthians in on his conversation. But he says, we don't put any obstacle in our way or in anyone's way. Another version says stumbling block, like a tripwire, like there's this bump in the trajectory of whatever movement is happening. And Paul is saying, and this is about his suffering, because again, the suffering that he was going through was causing the Corinthians to say, hey, something's wrong with Paul. God's really mad at Paul. He's not legitimate. You know, let's move on. And Paul says, let me just tell you something before we even get into the list of sufferings that I've been through and how I've responded from that. It is not an obstacle for you. Just because I'm going through difficulty is not a stumbling block, which is a better image, that something is in the way. And what he's saying to them is, my sufferings, and you and I need to hear this more times than we think, that our sufferings are not incongruent with God's call on our lives. We're Americans, so we, we think in a very Greek-oriented fashion. We separate everything out. And we say, I got this relationship with God, but then here comes suffering, which is not a part of that. And therefore, something is wrong. And so Paul is saying into that community and into our lives, hey, if you're going through pain and suffering, that doesn't mean anything about God's call on your life. That's just the way it goes sometimes. Which is what they were thinking, the Corinthians were thinking that Paul's not legit because his life's a wreck. And Paul's saying there's no inconsistencies of character for me. Just because I'm going through difficulty, try as you might, all you're going to find is integrity. Check out what he says in the next verse. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And he uses this word by great endurance. Say the word endurance. This is the key word, friends. This is the word actually that forms the rest of the passage. Endurance. I've put the Greek in there for you, but it equals Faithfulness, which is rooted in the Hebrew understanding of the person's response to God. It's not necessarily God's faithfulness to us, although we'll talk about that a little bit today, but this is about our faithfulness to God by great endurance. It describes this unyielding commitment to God regardless of the circumstances that are around us. And again, this is very polemical for Paul. He's fighting to make his point that regardless of his suffering, that he has kept the faith in and out of season and that his faithfulness and endurance are the true picture of who he is, not the circumstances. Character is not defined by what's happening to you. It's how you're getting through it. And that through it all, he has kept the faith. And so he says, we commend ourselves not in any other way except through our own endurance. 
And I love how he makes this inclusive. It's not just him saying, look, let me just commend myself. He's like, we, we do this. You and me in this room today. This is how we commend ourselves to the world around us when things are tough by great endurance. Notice what he says next. This is the list, by the way. I just thought it would be fun to, because Paul always lists his sufferings and afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots and labors, sleepless nights, hunger. I mean, don't you want to go out with this guy on a Friday? Like, you know, my neighbors will tell stories to me about what's happening, you know, to them on the weekends, and it's quite fun to listen to, but it's like, it's just nothing. I mean, Paul, I mean, did you get beat up tonight? Did you get thrown in jail? You know, did you get involved in a riot? But Paul's brilliant. I mean, this is a triad of three types of suffering. He does afflictions, hardships, calamities. These are all things he can't control. These are all things that just are happening around him. He's kind of that guy who always sort of attracts chaos. And then there's beatings, imprisonments, and riots. These are things that people do to him physically. And then he lists the final three labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Those are all connected. Paul was a tent maker. He worked at night to fund his passion and calling of ministry during the day. And so he's working all night. He's depriving himself of food. These are self-inflicted sufferings, which is a nice thing for us to get because that's just kind of how it happens. Some things just happen to us because it's just kind of the world we live in. Some things happen to us because of the people in our lives. They're, they do those things to us. And then some things we do to ourselves. And so he just lays all that out there. So that's his catalog. That's his list. Like, look, I've been through suffering. In other letters that he writes, he includes like shipwrecks. There's one uh, letter where he includes like how many times he got lashed on the back. Like he has the number. Like he was counting because I'm going to write this down one day. You know, is that all you got? 38? Come on, bring it, right? This is Paul. So he lists the catalog, and right before that, it's look, as servants of God, we commend ourselves by great endurance through these things in my life. And then he gives it the real heart right here, the next uh, part of the verse, by, what's the word? Purity. That's a fun word, because when we hear that word purity, when we read the word purity, we think, okay, that means sinless, it's perfect, it's the white wedding dress, like there's no history of wrongdoing, it's like without blemish, Purity is something unattainable. But in the Bible, purity is more about a life that's rightly lived. Righteousness is a good word. Purity is about continually staying in line with God's best for you. It doesn't mean there isn't failure, but it's this purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, Jesus said. A rightly lived life. And so Paul comes in and says, through all that stuff, purity and endurance. And again, Paul lists the ways that he had been through suffering. And at the top of the list is this word about a life rightly lived, pure in God's intentions for us. It has to do with not giving up, not veering into the wrong lane morally or behaviorally. Staying true. To get to the end of your life and look back with no regrets. Knowing that in the midst of suffering you kept the faith. That sin never had the last word. It has a few things to say in our lives, but it never has the last word. And it's hard to do because in the reality of suffering, all of us tend to weaken in our endurance, right? Like we just, 
we're looking for something to calm the pain or the fear quickly. And integrity topples. When we're under pressure, it can slip. And it's a struggle all of us share. When we're going through difficulty, it's just easier to fall back into some things that numb the situation. Let me show you this uh, in pieces, this uh, lesson that Paul gives the Corinthians. This is actually in the first letter that he wrote them. This comes from 1 Corinthians 10. He says, listen, no temptation has overtaken you that is not what? It's common. And see, here's the thing about temptation. And temptation, by the way, simply means you're standing at a crossroads and you're, you're forced to make a decision. And in the biblical context, it's a decision either to do your thing or God's thing. That's essentially what temptation is. You're forced to decide which way you go. And so not only is temptation a reality and it's scary for us, and sometimes some of us are in more tempting situations than other times, but Paul says, I just want you to kind of come down off your self-centeredness for a moment, and it's not unique to you. Whatever pressure it is that you're going through is not unique to you. Temptation is common. The word means humanly. This is just a shared part of the human story. No one is less a part of this than someone else. And oftentimes, what happens when people uh, will come to me and they will share, like they, this is what happens, you get the phone call or the email and they say, hey, I need to talk to you. And that always means, okay, this is going to be big, right? Um, I was at uh, Buckhead Church last Sunday night. My friend Billy, who's on staff, was preaching. He said, hey, come see me preach. I was like, oh, I'll be there. It's fun. It's got so in front row. It was cool. And, um, and he's speaking tonight at our volunteer dinner, so it was kind of cool to connect. And he had this great line about this very thing when people call the church and say, look, I need to talk to you. And, you know, that always means something bad. And he says, but keep calling because the church is like tech support for spirituality. Like just, that's what we're here for, right? It's a gray line. It's a gray line. And um, so when people sit down with me and they unfold their story, they unfold it thinking that, okay, this guy, this pastor has never heard what I'm about to tell him. So they go around the bush. I mean, they're just kind of like, well, you know, there's this thing. And sometimes I just finish it for them, right? Like you had an affair, right? Really? How'd you know that? Because that's usually what this is, you know, or something else, you know. And they throw it out there, and it may be layered and complicated and chaotic. But what I do is I try, the first thing I say when they're done, is I try and look at them in the, the eye and say, first of all, you need to know that you are, this is not unique to you, that you are not alone in this. Right? This is why there are support groups with people who are going through illnesses and so forth. Because there's just, it, you know, you're kept alive through being around people who are going through the same thing. Right? And, um, and so I try to tell them, look, you're not alone. It's common. Really? What I'm going through is common? Well, a little. No, I'm just kidding. It's a, it's a little uncommon, but we'll talk about that later. No, do you know what I'm saying? Like when we're struggling with something, we have this feeling that, like, this is just me. And Paul is saying, look, I don't want to burst your self-centered 
spiritual outlook, but it's common. Temptation is common. And then he goes on and says, but God is what? He's faithful. This is so cool. God is faithful. Because here's the thing, when we're at the crossroads of temptation, we often feel like God is not faithful at that point. Like the, faithful in the sense that he's still committed to us, that he's enduring. Right? We just sort of think, okay, well, I'm at this point where he's checked out because this isn't how he wants me to live or this is not where he wants me to be. And so he is no longer a part of this until I get it back together. And so Paul says, not only is temptation normal, it's common, it's everybody's situation, but when you're in it, God is still there. God is still faithful, which again is good to know. I mean, to quote Bonhoeffer, he who is alone with their sin is utterly alone. Like if you think that you're alone in that, there's, there's nothing more alone than that. And that when we're in the place of temptation, because of some sort of tragic circumstances or pressure or stress, Paul reminds us that God is there, he's faithful, he's not going anywhere. And that he hasn't given up and that somehow he will give us some sort of strength to endure. Go to the next slide. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of what? Isn't that a great word? Escape. Like, don't you feel like that sometimes? Like when you're, you're not going to admit this to me in, in here, but when you're in the middle of like a very difficult, tempting situation, like one of the things you're thinking is, I wish I had a way out of here, right? Escape. He says, God will provide that way for you that you may be able to, what's the word? Endure, remain faithful. That somehow you'll get to the end of this and through endurance, you'll survive. Faithfulness. When in the midst of suffering, keep the faith. And what's so powerful about this 1 Corinthians 10, 13 uh, verse is that we often think we're talking about sin and temptation and difficulty, like that feels so ungodly, and yet Paul was very specific about making sure that God is all throughout that verse. He's there, he's faithful, he's even providing an escape in some way. Let's do some application, and then I'll close out in prayer. Because I feel like all of us would want to grow and to learn how to hold up better through suffering. I mean, am I right on that? Because most of us would want, you know, we want to feel good about getting through something better than maybe we did the last time. Because none of us ever feels good about caving in. Well, about caving in when things were tough. Like, maybe not in the moment, but hours later or weeks later. And again, as I said earlier, like looking back and saying, what was I thinking? And it seems that all of us will want to find the right way to deal with suffering and hardship when it comes so that at the end of the day, we can look back and say, man, I kept the faith in that. Uh, three things. Number one is this. When, and I'll just say we so that we're all included, but when we're in the midst of suffering, where do we normally end up uh, find, finding ourselves ending up as a means of dealing with it? Like where, when you're going through, like the next time, and let's just start small, like what is your first reaction when someone cuts you off? Right? You give them a little present? You know what I'm saying? Got a little gift for you? 
I mean, what, what's the first thing you do? Right? What's the first thing you do when something happens to you? I, I, I imagine that you have a list of three or four or five things that continually loop as your reactions to stress and pain and suffering. It's a good question. Where do I always end up? What do I, what do I always do? If you don't know, if you're not very self-aware, ask your friends. They'll tell you. Number two, in connection with this passage we just looked at, what reactionary behaviors are, quote-unquote, very common to me when there's suffering in my life? Again, that's probably a looping cycle. Whether it's drinking, whether it's pornography, whether it's a certain person you call, whether it's something you do physically. Like, it's probably this looping cycle always find yourself back in the same place doing the same thing what is that what are those for you what are those for me see discipleship is so much about awareness like it's not just about like okay Jesus is Lord we move forward he's gracious Paul's calling us to like identify like what are those things that you find common in your life when there's pain and suffering that are outside of God's best for you, which is the third thing. What are the circumstances that often lead you in me to do the things that are outside of God's best for you? And that one's more about, that's preemptive. That's like, in what situations do I find myself tempted to be in places or do things that I shouldn't do? Right? And specific to our, this season of teachings, when there is pain and suffering, when things aren't going your way, when life falls apart, what are those things? And again, part of this is simply just knowing and identifying what is common to you when suffering comes. Knowing what behaviors are easy to fall into when life is hard. Like figuring that out and then building some safeguards, some guardrails in your life to keep things at bay. That could be a person, that could be certain situations that you just never go in anymore. You know you better than we know you. And so we have to sort of wrestle with that. Like, what is it, okay, every time this happens, what do I do? Where do I go that I shouldn't be? Personal suffering can impact all of us in various ways. One of which is that we find ourselves standing at a crossroads and being tempted to take an easy short-term route to feeling better in the moment. And it's not what God has for us. It's not his best for us. And if we're just all honest, like you don't even have to be a believer to, 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 uh, to sort of lock into this and say, yeah, that's true, but like take faith out of it. There's just always things that you look back and say, I don't even know what I was thinking. That was a terrible decision but I did it in the moment because it was, life was tough. So I get a pass, right? Life was tough. You don't. Biblically, God says, endure it. Keep the faith in the midst of suffering. So this is what we've learned so far in this season. One, God makes his home in broken people. That's an amen. Number two, 
that when we're in the midst of suffering, we maintain the behaviors of faith. We do not stop praying. We do not stop reading our scriptures. We do not detach from community. We just don't do that. Number three, we learned this last week, that while we're in the middle of the throes of all sorts of difficulty, we have to be reminded that God is still working inside of us, that he's still creating us anew each and every day. And today, we are challenged that in the midst of suffering, that we are called to endure, to keep the faith. Don't give in. Doesn't it make sense now that Jesus would add this to the model prayer that lead us not into what? Why do you put that in there? Because we need that, right? Lead us not into temptation. It's a daily prayer. Toward the end of Paul's life, he wrote these words to Timothy. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Don't you want to be at the end of the, end of the road and be able to say that? Like, I got through all the stuff. I endured. I kept the faith. And I love the phrasing, I fought the good fight. That's a good fight. That's a, you want a good fight? It's to keep the faith. I hope this is encouraging to you. I want to pray for you, and then we're just going to sing a couple songs uh, that speak to this, and, uh, and then we'll be done for the day. Father, thank you for um, the strength that you give us to endure trials and, and sufferings. God, we don't always hold up under bad weather. We don't always hold up um, when things are tough. And Father, we just pray as a community today, we just pray for strength in the storms of life. We pray um, that you keep our hearts and minds focused on perhaps the end goal. We, We focus on what you're trying to do in us. God, give us uh, the desire to endure, give us the, just the, the passion to, to please you in that way. And God, remind us through it all that when we don't endure, when we don't keep the faith, that you're still faithful, which isn't fair, but that's grace. And so we love you, and we sing these last couple songs just as an act of worship and praise over the reality that you are always faithful and that you are always nearby. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.